0: Ours is a nation that celebrates independence, not just as a nation, but even as individuals. We celebrate freedom, we celebrate liberty, we claim those inalienable rights that are declared in our own declaration of independence, of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Our heroes are those that stood strong for personal rights and personal freedom and personal liberty. We celebrate in our movies heroes who are admired because they do what they want, when they want, and no one tells them otherwise. Millions a generation ago celebrated and applauded Frank Sinatra as he sang, he did it his way. These are the things that really drive our culture. These are the things that drive a lot of people day in and day out. This notion of individual freedom and individual rights, this perception that if your freedom is violated, you can take on not only the whole nation, but the whole world in order to guard those kinds of rights. No matter what our culture says, no matter what our nation may think, that kind of attitude... If it's ever imported into the church, it's absolutely tragic, destructive. For a Christian, the supreme virtue is not your personal freedom, but your personal surrender. Giving up of your rights. Setting aside of your privileges. That's what Paul ultimately outlines in First Corinthians chapter 13 when he talks about what love looks like. It is the ultimate sacrifice and surrender of yourself. And even here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in fact, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's an extended discussion, really an extended challenge to this congregation and to you and I to lay down our rights as well. Paul sort of summarizes, I guess you might say, in chapter 10, verse 23, when he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is ultimately what the Christian life is supposed to be about. This is ultimately what the chief virtue that Paul's challenging us to is. This is what he's calling us on us to do. And you'll notice as he rounds out this section in 8, 9, and 10, And you come to the very first verse of chapter 11. What does he say? He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let me ask you a question. What's the context of that? What exactly is he wanting you to imitate? What's he really been talking about all the way through this? He's been talking about sacrifice. When he calls you to be an imitator of him, he calls me to be an imitator of him. What he wants you and I to imitate is his sacrifice. Now, back in chapter 9, you remember this is really what this is all about. He has given them a, 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 a challenge in chapter 8 where they have liberty, where they have rights, where they have all kinds of things which are allowable in their Christian life, he gave them the challenge to set aside those rights on behalf of their brother and sister. And then chapter 9 begins to talk about how he did the same. He opens up the chapter about how he had a particular right to take payment as a preacher of the gospel. First 14 verses of the chapter really are focused on that, how in so many different ways, in fact, he spells out five different proofs or validations of why God is uh, pleased, why God has willed that people who preach the gospel would make their living by the gospel. He lays out with extensive form his rights, his privileges in the ministry. But only to get to the main point, which is in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. He says this, but I have not made use of, of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my will... I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? In my preaching, I might present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. It's the Apostle Paul saying before he ever gets to chapter 11, but saying in not so many words, follow my example. Be imitators of me. Here I am laying aside rights. Here I am laying aside privileges. Here I am setting aside comforts and privileges and and uh, liberties or whatever you might want to call them. All of these things I lay aside, he says, for the sake of the gospel. This is what he is calling you and I to do in not so many explicit terms. He's spelling this out. It has application, obviously, to him has application to people who are even in the ministry, has application to people who are serving the Lord in various capacities, but really has application to you. Don't lose sight of the fact that this is all given to you. This is a leader setting the pace of sacrifice. This is a leader setting the example for you and I. This is what leadership is, right? We've talked about this a number of times. Leadership is example. Leadership is being able to say to someone, follow me as I follow Christ. This is what Paul's doing for us. And to that end, he spends these few verses clarifying not just these rights and privileges that were given up, but he spells out why he renounced his rights and why you and I need to do the same. In fact, he gives us in these verses three reasons on why he gave up his rights, three reasons on why he renounced them. First of all would be the proof of his ministry. He says he gave them up for the proof of his ministry. He says here in verse 15, Look, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. A lot of people read that and they understandably struggle. When Paul starts to talk about boasting, because Paul rebukes often other people for boasting. We know very well the Scripture speaks about the dangers of haughtiness and pride and how it goes before a fall. And even in this very book, especially in this book, Paul has rebuked the Corinthians over and over again for boasting. He told them in chapter 5, their boasting is not good. He asked them in chapter 4, why in the world are you boasting? he rebukes them for boasting in their accomplishments, for boasting in their ideas, for boasting in their wisdom, for boasting in doing things which are directly contradictory to the word of God. He rebukes them over and over again about boasting. In fact, he says very explicitly at the end of chapter 1, let anyone who boast boast in the Lord. Let no man boast, he says in the same chapter in the presence of God. If that's the case. Why is Paul so concerned about boasting? here why does he say he'd rather die than have someone take away his boasting is it because it's okay for an apostle to boast not for us it's okay for a leader to boast not for us it's important to understand what he means here and i think to get the context we should turn over to second corinthians chapter 11 because it really fills in the background for us 2 Corinthians 11:30 What Paul says If I must boast I will boast of the things that show my weakness This is what Paul boasted about And not just here but everywhere if you ever see Paul boasting, if you ever see Paul speaking of something that would he would draw attention to, this is what he drew attention to. He drew attention to his weaknesses. He even goes on in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians to talk about how while he had reasons in a human standpoint to boast, while he had things that he could draw attention to, he wouldn't do that. Instead, he will boast, he says in chapter 5, on the things which... Highlight his weaknesses. In other words, Paul characteristically boasted in things that other people would look down upon. Romans 15, 17. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud, to boast of my work for God, for I have not ventured to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So, in other words, we frame this in our minds and we understand that when Paul talks about boasting, he habitually, he characteristically talks about boasting in things which God has done in light of his weaknesses. Paul's boasting, his magnifying, his drawing attention, his, his glorying, if anything, was always glorying in his own power of God might rest upon him. So when Paul speaks about his boast, even in t- going financial support, he's speaking of something which appeared to be a weakness to other people. It was especially in this culture, in Corinthian culture, where people idolized rhetoricians, they idolized philosophers, they prided themselves in rhetoric and their perfection in it. It was all about electrify, electrifying a crowd. It was all about making a spectacle. It was all about drawing accolades because of your rhetorical flourish. Making a name for yourself. Paul's life cut against all of that which they believed to be great in a teacher. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter too, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in words of wisdom, persuasive words of wisdom, he says. So that. Their the power or their faith would not rest upon men, but upon God, the wisdom and the power of God. His speaking was Unimpressive. In fact, that's what they'll go on to say in 2 Corinthians 10, 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. It's difficult to listen to this guy. Greek culture not only prided itself on its rhetorical flourish, but even it measured itself or it measured its teachers, the importance of the teachers, based on the fee that they could demand. I mean, these guys, they were all about the kind of patrons that they could accumulate around themselves, the kind of pay that they could get for themselves, the kind of uh, luxurious homes that would take them in because of their name and their reputation. And in their minds, this validated their... And yet when Paul was with them, not only did he not have rhetorical flourish, but he refused... To receive payment for his services. So when the enemies of Paul. And there were enemies. In the Corinthian church. There were those who encouraged the rift between people who would say I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. When these enemies came to challenge the validity of his ministry. They felt like they had plenty of Feed for the fire. They accused him of not having the rhetorical weight of a true teacher. And they even used his refusal to charge for his services as an attack on the fact that he was an illegitimate leader. Maybe an illegitimate apostle. In fact, if you're still there in 2 Corinthians 11. You look a little bit earlier in chapter 11. To verse 7, and this is what Paul says. Notice the way he uses boasting in this passage. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches. You remember we talked about this last week that Paul at one point worked with his own hands. He, he was a tent maker in a trade supplying for his own needs and then at some point he actually left the working of his own hands and he received his financial support from other churches, from Philippi, from Thessalonica. But the one thing he never did was take money from the Corinthians. He says, look, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the burdens who the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be silence in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I do, I will continue to do. Why? in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasting, excuse me, in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. What's he talking about? What's this boasting all about then? Well, very simply, this is Paul's boast. This is his reason for doing this. It is the proof Of his ministry. This is the validation of his ministry. And just like in every other weakness, where Paul would draw attention to his frailty, when he had a thorn in the side, he says, I'll glory in infliction, in afflictions, and in in infirmities and in weaknesses. When he says, when they accused him of not having the rhetorical skill, he said, look, I don't mind being among you in fear and in trembling and in weakness and, and, and stumbling words. I don't mind that. I'll draw attention to that. I'll bring attention to the fact that I can't draw necessarily the fees and the crowds and have the accolades. I'll do all of that because that itself only serves to validate and to prove my ministry. Because they were impacted. Because people were changed. Because God used him in spite of all those weaknesses. Like in all these other places, when Paul talks about boasting, he's talking about his weaknesses. He's magnifying his weaknesses. He's drawing attention to and highlighting those things. Because when he's weak, the power of Christ rests on him. See, when he says boasting, he's not drawing attention his personal piety. He's not doing this in order to draw attention to some praiseworthy sacrifice he's making. Drawing attention to what they thought was a weakness. Because it proved to be validation of his ministry. That's why Paul says, look, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than have someone deprive me of this. Paul's boasting about is that despite all the disadvantages, despite having none of the prestige, despite having more hardship than any other teacher they had ever known, despite having none of the accolades and none of the pizzazz and none of the sensationalism, still, as he says back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9, Their life was changed and they became the seal, the mark, the validation of his ministry. There might have been other teachers who could get the Corinthians all excited. Maybe they could convince the Corinthians to support them. Maybe pay them the same kinds of fees as some of the well-known philosophers and itinerant speakers. That doesn't validate their ministry. But Paul's ministry was validated. And even without the support of the church. Even without the comforts and the luxuries. God allowed him to minister. God even blessed his ministry. In fact, you remember. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Remember Paul's contrast between their boasting and himself. He says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we're we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says, "This, is, this you, want, you want to have your boast? This is our boast. We're hungry, we're thirsty. The scum of the world. See, a lot of people, not just in ministry. There's certainly too many of those who try to fill the pulpit with this attitude. But there's a lot of people who are even in the church. And they are thinking and they are They are imagining that the validation of God's work on them, the validation of their ministry is that they get some sort of name for themselves, that they get some sort of recognition, that they get some sort of prestige, that they get some sort of position. And this is the way so many people approach ministry. This is the way so many people approach church. I mean, they come to the church and they'll think, you know, what does this church got for me? It's not Paul's approach. It wasn't about prestige. It wasn't about position. It wasn't about name. He would magnify, magnify. When he was disdained, when he was dishonored, when he was forgotten, because when he kept working, and God kept using him, Christ got all the glory, and proved his ministry. It validated his ministry. These are the things that validate any ministry. That without all the accolades, without all the glamour, without all the spectacle, or even of the people who are on the public speaking circuit, after breaking his back all day, cutting out materials and making tents, and then late into the night, leading Bible studies day after day, night after night, God. Used him. Without all the electrifying electri- rhetoric and the prestigious compensation, God still validated his ministry. So Paul would rather die than to give up that blessing. Secondly, he renounced his rights not only because this proved his ministry, but because of the stewardship of his ministry. That's what he says in verse 16 after saying that he could, he could have taken these things, he gave them up freely, he says in verse 15. He doesn't want them to get the impression that he's doing this, as he says in verse 15, in order to garner compensation. In fact, he says he really had no choice in the matter. If I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me. If I do not preach. The gospel. Paul says look there's no. There's not really any accolades in me just doing the work. That's not really any kind of praiseworthy thing. I mean I. I, Just showing up and preaching the gospel where you are. There's no need to bring attention to that. That isn't any ground for glorying. Why? Because he says there's been a stewardship. There's been a necessity laid upon me. And the results, if I didn't do it, would be disastrous, he says. Woe to me. It's a word for for pain and displeasure and despair. Grief. The onomatopoetic. Is that how you say it? I forget The exact pronunciation, one of those words that sort of sound like what it means. OI is the word in Greek. You can hear the agony. Woe to me. I didn't do this. This is what drove Paul. Through all the weaknesses, through all the suffering what drove him through all the pain and all the sacrifice and all the labor and all the dishonor and all the sleeplessness, what drove him through all that and even sometimes the hard-heartedness of the people that he was trying to minister to, this deep, deep sense of necessity that was laid upon him. God called him. You remember whenever he was on the road to Damascus and he sent him Ananias and he told Ananias, look, this guy is my instrument, he says in Acts chapter 9. My instrument to carry out the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Later on, Paul would tell in Acts 26, King Agrippa about this event. He says in Acts 26, at midday, O king, I saw a light on the way from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen to the ground, excuse me, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecuted. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this point, uh, purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen, and to those which will appear to you. Paul says to Agrippa, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. How could he be? Christ said, this is like kicking against goads. It's like kicking against prickly things. You just couldn't imagine doing that over and over again. Why would you do it? Why would you turn away from the stewardship and the necessity that's laid upon you and bring upon yourself the judgment and the woe and the cursing? What burdened Paul all the time. Colossians 1 25 of this church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me to make the word of God fully known. He says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Look, you ought to think about us this way. You ought to consider us this way as stewards, as simply managers, as those who have been entrusted with the mysteries of God. This is what was behind Paul's sacrifice. This is what behind, was behind any minister who's worth his salt. This driving force that burdens him every day, that, that helps him to think about, you know what, I'm going to stand, I'm going to give an account. There's been something that's been entrusted to me, I've got to be faithful with it. I've got to be faithful with the people that have been given to my charge. I've got to be faithful with this. There's going to be accountability. That's why you never stop in the face of weariness, in the face of struggle, rising early, staying up late, loneliness, foregoing pleasures. All of those things, you do it because of this sense of stewardship. Of course, it's not just Paul. And it's not just every other preacher. It's not just pastors and elders. They have been indeed given a stewardship. Hebrews 13, 17 says that you need to be aware those leaders among you are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You need to be aware of that. Do you know there's something else you need to be aware of? That God has given you a stewardship? Did you know that? Did you know that you're a steward? That you've been entrusted with something? That you'll be given a judgment? You'll be held accountable for something? This is what 1 Peter 4.10 says. Each Of you has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's manifold grace. You begin with stewardship. You begin with ministry. You're a believer. If you have trusted Christ. You have the spirit within you. He has given you gifts. He's given you ministries. He's placed opportunities in front of you. And you yourself need to be burdened by that. You need to be weighed down by that. You need to be driven by. Faithfulness in that is what drove the Apostle Paul. In his mind, this is why he deserved no praise, no reward, no recognition. Because he didn't have any choice in the matter. Necessity was laid upon him. What he explains in verse 17, look, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. New American Standard If some of you have that phrase is this in verse 17 against my will as if the contrast is between a willing and a reluctant person. And some people have thought that through the years that Paul's talking about, uh, you know, sometimes you have a a reluctant minister or sometimes you have a willing minister. But Paul's not talking about the difference between an eager preacher and an apathetic preacher or an indifferent preacher. Really not a good translation. The the contrast here is not between willingness and reluctance. The contrast is between something that was his idea and something that wasn't his idea. It wasn't Paul's personal idea. You don't just wake up one day and decide, you know, I'm going to be a minister. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to be a pastor or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. No, God lays it upon you. And even you in your own ministry, God has called you. God has placed you or placed opportunities in front of you. Paul was well aware he had no part in any of this. And so, since it wasn't his choice to serve Christ, consequently, he didn't expect any grand reward. In fact, if you look over, this is Paul just sort of playing out the teaching of our Savior, Luke 17. Look over there for just a moment because this takes it very clearly beyond the scope of just those who are in ministry proper, vocational ministry, leadership maybe in the church. This is a parable. This is a story that Jesus shares about everyone. Everyone who serves. He tells this whole story in verse 7 of Luke 17. Luke 17. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, recline at a table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy Servants, we've only done what was our duty. Jesus is not encouraging here lack of gratitude for those who serve you. What he's telling you is that, look, when you have done, simply done, what is expected of you, where's the room for boasting? He's given the example of this slave on a small farm who... Apparently, only one slave, because after he does his work in the field, he rounds out his day at around three or four in the afternoon. He comes in, he still must clean up and prepare a meal for the family. This is the sort of guy who does everything. And when he's done everything in the field, the master doesn't say at the end of the day, Wow, I mean, you've really done well. Why don't you sit here and take a load off and uh, I'll make you some dinner? It's not the way it works not going to do that any more than your boss is going to come to you halfway through the day and say, man, you've worked hard the first three hours of the day. Why don't you cut out of here? It's not going to happen, right? Why? Because there's an expectation that you will fulfill your duties, that you will do your whole day of work. How these ancient farms in Israel would work, and the slave understood that. And after he finished... His work in the field he hadn't gotten done until he had gotten the meal ready for the family. So he understood that his owner was not asking more than what was simply expected of his job. No need to show this guy any special favor if he's simply doing what's expected of him. As I said, this is not to imply that the master shouldn't be grateful Or should treat him harshly. Or be inconsiderate. Jesus' point is simply this. That he was. Only doing. The basic. Of what had been commanded him. No demand for special recognition. See when you present your. Self to God, you present your ministry to God, you serve the Lord, you show up on a Sunday morning, you show up on a weeknight, you do something for someone, you make them a meal, you carry all these things, you get done with all that. There's no ground for standing around looking for recognition. There's no place to... You've, you've gotten up, you've fed your family as a homemaker, you've taken care of your kids, you've... Gotten them into their schoolwork or off to school or whatever it might be. You've taken care of your home. You, you've acquitted yourself well in all these duties, and then you don't stand around at the end of the day and say, "Where's my recognition? Where's all the accolades?" No, oh, aren't these the things that are commanded of you? Aren't these the basics? This is what Paul's saying. Look, there's no need for. There's no need for accolades. There's no need for boasting. I'm just doing what has been laid upon me by someone else. Some mandate that has been given to me to, to serve and to preach and to do all the things that God has given me to do. I'm simply doing that. There's no ground for boasting. Remember what he said back in chapter 3 what is Apollos? What are Paul? They are simply slaves through whom you believed, as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Listen, never do the humble. Suppose that God or anyone else is somehow indebted to them for their acts of service. Because they know and they understand that God is the one who's actually doing the working through them. Laying down yourself for others. Laying down yourself for your spouse and for your children. Laying down yourself and laying aside your rights to forgive freely. Laying down yourself to call others back to faithfulness. All the things that God commands you in your Christian life. God does all the work through you. So where's the boasting? This is Paul. This is why he laid aside his rights. This is why he didn't make any demands. This is why he didn't stand around and expect some sort of prestige. These are the reasons. Because the stewardship had been given to him. And thirdly, he mentions a reward. This is sort of the final reason why he did it. This is great. Listen to what he says in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching... I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make any right, any use of my right in the gospel. So, what is his reward? What is, what is his, his pay? Well, it's not to be paid. What is his reward? He doesn't get to make full use of his rights. His reward, in other words, is to lose. His reward is that he gets to give everything up. See what he's saying there? What's my reward? That I get to set aside my rights. So what kind of reward is that? Well, if you love the gospel. If you love the gospel. What kind of reward you're looking for? It's the reward, first of all, of being like your Savior. You know, get into counseling situations with people and, and you start encouraging them to do what God wants them to do. You start encouraging them to show the kind of grace and the kind of forgiveness. You try to encourage them to show the sacrifice that God's commanding of them and, and inevitably the comeback is, but, but, but if, I, if I do that, they won't. That's not the point, you see. That's one of the first things that, that I always ask, I think all of our counselors always ask, when someone comes for counsel why are you here why are you here and and the answer is always something like well because my marriage or because our finances or because of this job or because this person won't do this or because that person won't do that and immediately it is framed in terms of reward and you wind up spending 6 or 8 or 12 or 20 weeks Trying to reorient that. So that when they leave. You can ask why did you come? And the answer is so I can glorify God. So I can do what God wants me to do. That's what Paul's. That's his reward. His reward is that he got to do what God wanted him to do. And for those who love the gospel. This is their reward. The fact that they. They by whatever means they can, get to see the gospel advance in people's hearts, in people's lives, in the lives of their family, in the lives of their children, in the lives of their spouse. Paul would tell the Philippians, he says, Look, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice, he says. You know what a drink offering is? It is that liquid that they would take, some sometimes wine, sometimes other things, and they would pour it out over the sacrificial animal or the meat before it was burned up. And so Paul says, look, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm just being burned up, I'll rejoice. I'll rejoice because of your faith. The Colossians he says I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ afflictions for the sake of the of the body that is the church. says in another place for this reason brothers in all of our distress affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel Your sake before our God. Paul says, Look, in my distress, in my suffering, in my sacrifice, this is my joy. You are growing, you are rejoicing in the Lord. This is a delight of anyone who has a proper understanding of the gospel and a proper understanding of their rights. This is a delight of every mom who understands what they're about with their children. This is a delight of every husband who understands what they're about with their family. The fact that they get to sit back and they get to watch people rejoicing in God and in His goodness. And even if they get none of the accolades and none of the credit, and even if they get none of the recognition and they go and they show up and they serve, they serve within the church, they serve within the family, whatever it is, and no one ever acknowledges what they do, this is their reward. That God's glory exalted and that the gospel goes forward this is what paul lays out before he eventually says to you and i now you the imitators of me because i'm an imitator of christ Let's stand together we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer Father, we're grateful for this reminder from the great apostle today, the great leader, a great example for us, we pray that you would help us to be those who are so ready to renounce our own rights, our own liberties, our own privileges and delights, so that we can take the delight of seeing a brother and sister built up in you, and seeing them glory in you, seeing the gospel advance, make us a church filled with these kinds of ministers. Pray in Christ's name.